I'm John Lewis, and you're listening to 360 Degree City, a podcast where we talk to people who are working to make cities better. Our hope is that after each episode, you'll start to see your own city from a slightly different angle. We started 360 Degree City in 2018 as a way to celebrate the 10th anniversary of our company, Intelligent Futures, and to share the conversations we were having about cities beyond just the boundaries of the projects that we happen to be working on. And this is our 50th episode. Not bad, considering that besides just listening to podcasts, our team had zero idea of how to put one together when we first got started. The name of the podcast, 360 Degree City, was intentional. We wanted to explore cities from a variety of angles. Cities are the most complex creation that us humans have ever come up with, and we wanted to explore the diversity of issues that cities have faced in the past, that we're grappling with today, and will need to address in the future. In our first 50 episodes, we've covered areas such as urban agriculture, walkability, citizen science, the impact that Instagram's having on our cities, cycling, both winter and non-winter, the mental impact of city spaces, green buildings, and what COVID-19 is doing to our cities, and many, many more issues. But what's exciting is that in many ways, we've just scratched the surface. Our team has a list of dozens of new ideas to explore, and after our summer break, we're ready to start rolling out episodes every second Monday again. As architect Daniel Liebskin said, cities are the greatest creations of humanity. Over half of the world's population now lives in cities, and that's projected to continue to grow over time. It's important that everyone understands how they can individually and collectively make these places better. And our aim is for every listener of this podcast to see cities from a slightly different angle than before they listened. Looking back over this first 50 episodes covering a wide range of topics, I've observed some important themes that span specific issues. This episode takes a look back at what we've heard from our amazing guests. So let's dive in. A theme that emerged from a variety of conversations with our guests is the idea of choice architecture. I first came across this idea in Cass Sunstein and Richard Thaler's book, Nudge. These behavioral economists coined the term choice architecture, saying that it's organizing the context in which people make decisions. And people, organizations, and institutions make decisions about our cities that can profoundly impact the decisions that people then make within the city. Think about the decisions that transportation engineers, planners, and city councils made to create communities where the automobile is assumed to be the default way of getting around. Even if someone who lived in that community was personally committed to walking or cycling or had no other option, it would be significantly more difficult for that person to move around in their preferred way than someone who owns a car and wants to drive. This could very well lead to the committed person purchasing a vehicle. A professor I know at the University of Calgary once told me a terrific story of a colleague who was born and raised in Paris and had never needed a car or really had interest in getting one. This person then took a job in Phoenix, Arizona, and thanks to the previous decisions of the choice architects there, he was the owner of a car within a month in order to get to work, buy groceries, and all the other elements of city life. Johanna Herme of 5468796 Architecture expressed this idea when talking about how architects use their skill set to serve others. You have to, I guess, balance the balance that expertise with understanding that you're creating uh, architecture for others. Like that's almost the definition that it is. It's the design process, but it's always targeted for others. It's not for us. In one of our earliest episodes, Cornelia Dinka shared the story of Amsterdam's evolution. 
Now known as one of the cycling capitals of the world, many people assume that this is just the way that Amsterdam has always been. But Cornelia shared how conscious decisions were made to move the city from an auto-oriented city to one that was much friendlier to cyclists and ultimately safer for children. I had the impression that Amsterdam had always been the city of bikes, let's say. Uh, so it really came as a shock to, to find out, to discover um, that, in fact, there was a period uh, in Amsterdam's history when it was very uh, much dominated by cars. The city uh, transitioned from uh, a city dominated by, by people um, by, uh, in the 1800s and the early 1900s, and how uh, this city then transitioned to a city dominated by cars, uh, uh, in the, starting in the 50s, uh, so after the Second World War, and uh, really uh, aggravating uh, the situation, getting more, much more car-centric by the 60s, 70s, and 80s. The, uh, the number of traffic accidents started to skyrocket. Uh, so the peak in Amsterdam was more than 100 traffic fatalities in the early 70s per year, just in Amsterdam. And to compare that with the current day uh, statistics, which is uh, around 10 to 15 traffic fatalities and stable. So that includes uh, fatalities, so people in cars, but also pedestrians and bikes and public transit and so on. Uh, so, so what that led to uh, was this campaign, very much uh, a bottom-up campaign, where people went out in the streets and demanded safer streets for children and, by extension, for everyone else. And then uh, by the 1990s, we start to see a shift again, and then the emergence of a city dominated by people and bikes um, in the current day, let's say. As a concept on its own, choice architecture is neither good nor bad. It's really about the intent and the consequences of what choice architects do. My old friend David Fortin, the director of the McEwen School of Architecture at Laurentian University, shared how choice architecture can be used for truly horrific purposes. Colonialism brought with it a different pattern of the relationship between what design meant. You know, the relationship, and, yeah. and, and I'm interested in this idea of drawing architecture. Um, you know, so theorists like Robin Evans talk about how it was part of Western thinking that you you would basically draw the utopian idea uh, in two dimensions, right, geometrically perfected, um, and then you would build that reality after. But that's a very so it's like you're drawing the future, right? Um, that's a very Westernized way of thinking uh, related to making things. And so my my critique goes to you know even to the residential schools. Um, you know, the politicians may have had the ideas of assimilation, but the, f the, the people who drew the, the infrastructure for that to happen were the architects uh, acting with no mm -hmm. personal agency. They were agents of the system of assimilation. Mm -hmm. right? And from that moment on, you know, the mm -hmm. outline of ceremony or outlawing of ceremony, um, you know, even the building of traditional structures outlawed. I mean, teepees were allowed in, in context. Right. But, um, you know, uh, a different relationship between buildings and people and design process. And from then on, it becomes a very paternalized relationship between buildings and indigenous people. You know, next it's like, oh, no, you know, if you're Métis, your log house is not good enough, even though they were performing pretty well or the teepees are savage. Or so now we're going to start supplying you housing because it's our responsibility as part of our treaty. And so then they similarly draw these very, you know, American suburban homes that have no relationship to the culture of the people. And then they just start 
replicating them. So the reason why design is a really important step towards sovereignty is because for the last 150 years, Indigenous people have been shoved down their throats, the environments that they're surrounded by, by their own, not their own will. And, and yet architecture has that incredible capacity to connect people to places. scales and types of systems have been talked about in our first 50 episodes as well. While each city has a unique history, geography, economy, culture, our cities are all connected to broader systems that exist in our world. So while it may not seem like it when you're living your life in Toronto or Sao Paulo or Cape Town, cities are influenced by and have influence on regional, national, and global systems of economy, environment, food, to name a few. Cities are terrifically complex in and of themselves, but it's also important to be mindful of how they're related to the broader world. Our guests have explained how cities connect to these systems and how sometimes there are disconnects with how we understand how the city relates to the world. Our very first guest was our friend Aaron Sullivan White. He runs Community Food Lab in Raleigh, North Carolina. We've worked with Aaron on urban agriculture and food security projects and asked him why it's important for city dwellers to understand the food system from the local to the global. The regular guy on the street, regular folks, regular families don't know where food comes from. They aren't able to imagine what a farm is. They aren't really able to picture what that looks like or where food comes from. And if regular folks don't understand where food comes from, then we can't really expect them to help make decisions about making sure that food will be there in the future. And so this disconnection from food is, is a key problem that's facing our culture. The food system, you know, everything that connects to link farms and distribution and proce- food processing, all kinds of marketing and kind of food retail, all those different pieces make up this food system. So when you or I might walk into a grocery store or might sit down at a restaurant, that's just one end of that system. But there are many, many steps before that before that happens uh, that really are all the parts of this system that gets it from farm to a table. And then also includes the uh, how you handle the food waste through composting or um, other kind of recycling, ideally. Um, so, so the food system is that really – kind of big set of parts that all links together. So for me, a healthy food system is one that is somewhere in the middle where we do have some large global production to make sure that everybody has the, the sustenance they need. But then there's a lot more of this small local food system projects that allow people to connect to each other, to connect to food, to allow us to make food-based ecological decisions and local economic decisions. There's a lot of good things that happen when a food system becomes more local. So often, nature and city are thought of as separate, but human-made systems are profoundly connected with the natural systems that, in turn, keep us alive. Dana Duke of the Mistakis Institute here in Calgary talks about biodiversity and what it means to our cities. I think a lot of people think of... um, natural systems as being not part of an urban setting mm-hmm. and it it's um not true at all that we, um, biodiversity is really important within urban environments you know and biodiversity is the 
variety and variability of all life on Earth. Mm-hmm. And so it's it, there's a real continuum of that, that there is a lot of biodiversity in certain places in the world. Um, and people tend to think that we don't have that in our cities, mm-hmm. but we do. We have lots of areas within cities that have our hotspots of biodiversity. And more importantly, we have these systems within our cities, mm-hmm. these natural ecosystems. Um, and I think people tend to forget how important those ecosystems and systems are for for our cities because they provide really important ecosystem services to city dwellers. Um, mm-hmm. The ecosystem services that biodiversity contributes to, that's what gives us our clean air, our water, provides our regula- uh, regulating systems, carbon cycling, um, provides our recreational opportunities, all these ecosystem services, and those are provided by the biodiversity that's right here in our city. New York-based landscape architect Martha Schwartz builds on the connection of natural systems and cities. Martha was recently awarded the American Society of Landscape Architects Design Medal, which recognizes a landscape architect who has produced a body of exceptional design work over a sustained time. Martha shares how understanding the landscape is also influenced by culture and personal beliefs. I was even taught when I went to school that a good landscape was a landscape that did not show the hand of man. That was when you succeeded. When I came in, it's like, well, our cities are landscapes. As soon as you step out of the building, everything is the landscape. Everything. Your roads, your sewers, your sidewalks, your, uh, you know, your, your uh, clover leaves, your highways. I mean, th- there's everything outside of that building footprint is the landscape and we're making them. But because it's not really seen as a landscape, we, we don't really bother designing them. It's neither architecture, it's not landscape, what is it? It's what the engineers pretty much tell us it is and then we kind of think, well, that's just the way it looks. But there are other cultures who really see the landscape as something that's more integrated with us as human beings. It has to do with cultural views, religious views, who we are as part of the universe. I mean, it really depends on individual philosophies. But here in the West, we're completely separated. And I think that because I've traveled around and worked in many places, it's very evident that we continue to think about building and building things, building our cities as a purview of architecture planning. And the landscape is left for us somewhere out there. And that has actually cost us quite a lot and will cost us even more in the future as we think about the landscape as something other than something that's connected to us. I had a fascinating conversation with Megan Faulkner and RJ McCullough, who are heritage planners in Vancouver and are also founders of the magazine Hindsight. We discussed a recent issue that explores major events that transpired in the year 1989 in Beijing, Berlin, Toronto, Paris, and San Francisco. The events were widely varied, but there was a thread of the influence of global to local political systems influencing these events. You know, instead of looking at just one topic, what if we looked at one date and um, looked at how it connected um, events across the world? And so there are some of our events in, our, in these cities that we focus on are connected, and some of them were, um, you know, happened because of natural disaster or... Um, but yeah, we thought it was kind of an interesting take. There's certainly a, a political theme between them. There's a lot of um, 
democratic movements, if you will. We look at the Tiananmen protests in Beijing, but we also look at the fall of the Berlin Wall. And Hmm. so months apart, worlds apart, but, you know, similar kind of winds of change, very different outcomes, obviously. Cities, of course, don't exist in a bubble. As previous guests have illustrated, cities themselves represent a dynamic system, and they also connect to these other kinds of systems, and that inevitably leads to change. Vancouver-based urbanist Eric Villagomez spoke about this change. Cities and settlements are always changing, period. They never stop. It might look like it stops, but it's not, right? So each each, um, settlement, no matter at what time in history, um, all the way through the present, and it seems to be even quickening in the present, um, are always, always changing. And that perception that people have that, you know, whether it's, you know, I want my neighborhood to stay the same, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, is actually a complete, uh, a complete illusion, right? Uh, mm-hmm. All of it always changing. And it actually comes from a place where people, we ourselves are changing all the time, right? Uh, you know, we're, uh, getting older, where different parts of us are doing different things, they're developing in different ways, uh, and cities actually reflect that, just like with anything else, right? A number of years ago, I had the pleasure of meeting Bob Willard, an expert on sustainability and business. One of the practices of sustainability champions that he identified was called planful opportunism. This is an idea that you plan and prepare for the kinds of change you want to see so that you're ready when opportunities or circumstances arise. Over the years, I've thought a lot about this idea and tried to apply it to our practice at Intelligent Futures, trying to ensure that our work both makes the case for positive change, but it also builds capacity so that when opportunities come up, communities are ready to spring into action. Without using that fantastic term of planful opportunism, our guests have spoken about this idea throughout the first 50 episodes. There are so many factors that influence cities that it's extraordinarily difficult to push the exact change agenda that you want. And that's why I think the idea of planful opportunism is so important. City builders need to be prepared when the right circumstances arise so that these windows of opportunity aren't squandered. Two guests in particular illustrated very different kinds of circumstances that represent this idea. Richard Parker, the former director of planning for the city of Calgary, shared the opportunity that emerged when Calgary was awarded the 1988 Winter Olympic Games. The east side of downtown Calgary was a neglected part of the city, and thanks to planning work done in previous decades, there was a blueprint for change. The idea of this started with the 1966 downtown plan, That plan always envisaged an open space at the east end of the Stephen Avenue Mall in the vicinity of what is now Olympic Plaza. So that's where the idea started. The 1966 plan also proposed 7th Avenue to become the transit corridor and for Stephen Avenue to become a pedestrian mall. Fast forward to September 1981. Uh, City of Calgary was selected for the 1988 Winter Olympics. As I said, we uh, won it in a boom and built it in a bust. Right as soon as the games were awarded, some of the folks in the planning department, including myself, were saying, here's an opportunity to uh, go and get the, uh, the open space we'd planned for in F- that 1966 plan. Yeah, yeah. 
um, and do it temporarily and show Calgarians. Because if you'd suggested to Calgarians in that that you wanted to put spend money creating an open space in the East End, most of them, first question would be, where's that? Hmm. They just okay. had no concept in the city hall. It wasn't an area where there was people congregating or anything right. like that. And that kind of reminds me of the statement in the front of the Mawson plan, which is Calgary's first plan done back in 1911 to 1914. And he was talking of Calgary as a million people, which it wasn't even at the time of the Olympics, so many years before. And he said in his introduction to the plan, the purpose of city planning is not to tear down your city and rebuild it. It's rather to decide what it is you want. So when the opportunity presents itself, you build the right thing. Mm -hmm. The opportunity was the Olympics. Mike Lydon, a principal with Street Plans in New York, has been keeping a close watch on how cities are proactively responding to COVID-19. There are wide variations in how communities have been responding, but some of the communities who are taking the most extensive action already had a plan for transforming spaces. Last week, Oakland, California announced that they were going to um, take the shared street approach on 74 miles of streets. Right. They're rolling that out kind of street by street. You can't just do that you know, overnight, but um, really to be commended. And I think one thing to point to both in um, Oakland and then also in Burlington, Vermont, which is another city that's taken that tactic and, um, you know, much smaller city, but they've mm. closed, you know, Burlington's closed, not closed, but they've re kind of calibrated a quarter of their street network. The interesting thing about both those initiatives is that if you map, you know, the streets that they've decided to create these shared streets on, and then you look at those two cities, bike plans, you know, Oakland has a plan that is, you know, very much like, uh, say, a Portland or Berkeley or Seattle, where they're really trying to focus residential corridors into um, as shared spaces. Really, you can take a scooter, you can walk, you can cycle, you can cross the street, like really low speed and low volume environments. Um, and we actually worked on the Burlington Bike Master Plan and Pedestrian Master Plan uh, several years ago. And one of the big strategies there was to do something very similar. So take these low you know, volume and low speed residential contexts, constrain mm -hmm. them further, and make them more like greenways and spaces that people can, can yes, you can drive, but you're actually um, inviting people to use the street in a variety of different ways that's mm -hmm. not just driving. So in event, both those cities looked at those plans and said, all right, here's the map, here's the network. And that's pretty much what Oakland is doing right now. Oh, wow. and, okay. And what I, what I think every city I would say that most cities, what they're missing right now is taking that kind of approach and thinking through how, if you do have a plan that, you know, we're trying to achieve these kinds of streets, this is such an amazing time to take advantage of the moment and try them and get them embedded into daily life so people get used to it. You know, it's, it's one thing to be really reactive and, and, and provide space right now. That's important. But if you're not already thinking about how this relates to things after the pandemic, then you're really missing a huge opportunity. In the early 20th century, thinking about cities started focusing on systems and efficiency. Known as city efficient or city scientific, a major focus in cities was on the provision of utilities and services at a citywide scale. Given the previously haphazard nature of some provisions in the past, this led to greatly improved public health results for communities and improved quality of life for many residents. 
But over time, city builders began focusing on this efficiency of citywide systems at the expense of the impact on actual people. One of the classic examples of this mindset is the efforts of Robert Moses in New York in the 1950s and 60s in particular. Moses was fighting massive opposition to an expressway he was trying to build through the middle of Manhattan, displacing people and carving up functioning neighborhoods. Here, in Ken Burns' documentary, New York, he's describing what he feels is most important. The evidence of the need of that thing is overwhelming from the point of view of engineering and traffic. And that's all that matters. Well, in the end, yes. In another part of the documentary, Moses explains his mindset of why he was so focused on building expressways and highways. We wouldn't have any American economy without the automobile business. That's literally true. We believe that, that this is a great industry that has to go on and has to keep on turning out cars and trucks and buses. Then there have to be places for them to run. There have to be modern roads, modern arteries. Somebody's got to build them. And uh, in order to get those things done and done properly, People must be inconvenienced to her in the way. While there have certainly been benefits to the varied systems that exist in modern cities, the result in many parts of our communities are places that are indifferent or even hostile to the actual experience of people. Many of our guests have talked about the human scale city, focusing on improving the lives of human beings. Our guests over the first 50 episodes represent a focus that cities should be built for people rather than automobiles. John Bella of Gale's San Francisco office is one of the founders of Parking Day, where folks occupy metered parking stalls with places for people. John describes a realization they had when doing studies that led to this original installation back in 2005. We did a little calculation, which was that if you look at the cross-section of the street, how much of that space is allocated for people on foot or on bike, and how much of that is allocated for vehicle movement and storage. And it's a, it was about, you know... 25% was allocated to um, people and 75% was allocated to vehicle movement and storage. And so we had this you know, realization that, wow, the, the streets in the city are potentially the largest public space that the city has. And yet we're allocating you know, 70 to 80% of that to um, vehicle movement and storage, which we don't think is the best use of that space. Jenny Rowe, an environmental psychologist at the University of Virginia, shared some insights on restorative spaces and how they can create and sustain the health and well-being of people. And we have to go back to restorative environment theory to help explain that. So the theory posits there are four attributes of the physical environment that promote psychological restoration and well-being. And one of them is fascination. The fascination is another word for curiosity, engagement in your environment. It doesn't necessarily need to be green space. It could be an aquarium or an art gallery or a facade of um, inherent historical or modern architectural interests. So restorative environments don't necessarily need to be green. They've been studied largely because green space has been found to have this component. The other, th the other three components, I'll just mention them really quickly, are it, this environment has to promote a sense of being away, a sense of escape, um, a sense of extent, which means it provides access to a whole other world. It might take you to some other place in your mind, in your imagination. 
and compatibility. That world has to fit with what you want to do there. I asked Copenhagen-based urbanist Michael Colville Anderson how he came up with the idea of the life-size city, which is an idea that's also the name of his TV series. What is the life-size city? I think I'm going to start by explaining where the phrase came from because it's going to, it's, I think it might explain it. So yeah, you're talking about your daughter, but um, I'm wandering around the neighborhood with uh, the Lulu, my daughter. Uh, mm. She's now 10, but I think she was about four or five and uh, we're just walking through our neighborhood waiting for the light to change at an intersection. And, and she was just kind of looking around and, and, and she, and she just looked up at me out of the blue and just said, daddy, when is my city going to fit me? And I'm like, okay, whoa, you know, that's, that's a heavy question because, you know, she felt small, right? And if you're a kid walking through a city, you're looking at grown up asses all day long. Uh, you know, your you know, gar <laughs> garbage cans are like basketball hoops. Of course, you're out of scale because that city wasn't designed for you. It was designed for adults. And, um, and I said, you know, you'll, you'll be fine. You know, you'll grow your brother. He's, you know, he's big and eat your vegetables or whatever. And, uh, and, uh, you know, and she says, yeah. And, and then she just sort of looked at me and went, yeah, like, I know, like it was like, a <clears throat> she didn't know the word rhetorical, but if she did, she would have said, daddy, it was a rhetorical question for God's sakes. Um, but that, that made me think, you know, does, wait, does my city fit me, you know? And, and living in, in Copenhagen, you know, uh, a benchmark city in many ways, you know, there are many parts of the city riding my bike, uh, you know, on protected bike lanes with, you know, 40,000 people a day on bikes down certain streets. Um, you know, yeah, there's parts of the city where whoever designed that was thinking of Michael and nobody else. And hopefully everybody else feels the same way. There are still parts of the city where no, it's like, what is this place? You know, weird architecture, no urban context, no, uh, you know nothing, no cohesiveness. And, um, and, and certainly most cities in the world are not life-size, larger cities, not at all. Um, mm -hmm. So the goal is really that, that you and I and, and anybody who lives in a city, regardless of age, uh, feels that it's life-sized. And hopefully, you know, the, the, the listener right now will think, huh, yeah, what does that mean to me? Because that's, that's, that's the whole goal is that they sit there thinking, hmm, what is a life-size city, you know? Is it just wandering out of my house into my garage, getting in my car, driving to my car, going into a garage, going to work and just repeating that ad nauseum? Or is it maybe like interacting with the urban landscape as we've done for 7000 years? So, you know, uh, the Lulu didn't give me the uh, uh, the phrase, but I mean, you know, I invented that. But, it, it, you know, all credit to her for making me think, you know, wait, do I fit? Right. This might, I don't have to fit mm -hmm. in my city. That's the key. I don't have to fit in my city. The city has to fit me. If most cities have been built for cars over the last number of decades, then making places for people is an uphill climb in many ways. U.S. author and urbanist Jeff Speck shares how walking and cycling needs to compete with the car. If people are to walk, the walk has to be as good as a drive. Pretty straightforward. And you can say the same thing about biking. You know, the walk or the bike has to be as good as the drive. And in order to do so, it has to do four things simultaneously. It has to be useful. It has to be safe. It has to be comfortable. And it has to be interesting. Larry Beasley, the former chief planner for the city of Vancouver, shared why planners and other urban professionals need to open their ears in order to best understand a place. I could never know the details of a place as well as the people who inhabit the place, who live there, who work mm -hmm. there, stay there, who have their families there. Uh, I always use the case of, uh, you know, breaking down the fence because it was a fast way to school. Uh, I always use a case when I was a neighborhood planner, something called the bunny trail. And uh, 
it was we were trying to do a neighborhood plan and we were trying to have a kind of a continuity of not just uh, people moving around, children and all that moving around, but also beginning to think about environmental movements and all that. And uh, it was the little kids that said, come on, I was going to show you this thing where all the bunnies all go through from one cul-de-sac to another. Uh, and, uh, you know, we were probably going to remove that had we not hmm. been careful, had we not just, just frankly, shut up and listen. <laughs> connected to the focus on cities for people, many guests have discussed the importance of empathy and equity in our cities. In so many different ways, our cities have been built to serve the needs of a narrow spectrum of the population. Jane Jacobs famously said, cities have the capability of providing something for everybody only because and only when they're created by everybody. Over the past number of months, there's been a significant and important increase of conversations about systemic racism in our communities and our institutions, while the impacts of COVID-19 has exposed and magnified a variety of other inequities. Many of our guests are doing important work on broadening how our cities consider and empower citizens that traditionally may have been left out of the conversation. Proactive and ongoing effort is going to be required to ensure that the current level of attention on these issues doesn't fade away. If we're going to create cities that work for everyone, we constantly need to challenge our assumptions and be open to learning and being humble. Many of our guests shared great insights to help us understand how to think differently about cities to make them more equitable and empathetic. Leela Vishwanathan, a professor in the School of Urban and Regional Planning at Queen's University, spoke about the mindset shift that's needed to authentically listen to others. So many folks, I mean, professional planners and, and students are always looking for answers when we're constrained by time and we're constrained by resources to find solutions. And what an empathic approach to planning entails does mean taking time to listen to perspectives that aren't necessarily based on what you learn uh, in in a course or what you learn is, is you know as technical skills it, it means wow it means setting aside what you perceive to be the problem and waiting to hear from someone else to to hear their point of view toronto-based city builder zara ibrahim put the issue of equity into focus by highlighting how city builders like planners architects and engineers need to do more what covid19 has really brought to the surface is how few city professional city builders have been thinking about equity and have been thinking about justice and fairness because our cities took a huge hit and our communities took a huge hit during COVID. And for all the city building that's happening all across Canada, around the world, but all across Canada, here we are. Patty Rios of Happy City spoke with us about women-led cities and shared an example of how even something as seemingly mundane as snow removal can have differing effects on women. Well, when it's just men at the table, I mean, uh, the first thing that we got to notice is that we're, we're leaving out 50% of the population. And uh, mm -hmm. so we are building on the perspective on just one half of the population. And that's, that's the most important fact, I think. Uh, one of the specifics is, for example, like think about snowplow. Um, so whenever there's a big storm and the streets are covered with snow and the sidewalks are covered with snow, uh, the city has this 
sign that the first thing that needs to be plowed are the streets. Why? Because people need to get to work. And most likely people are going to be taking their cars if they are coming into the city. But if we look at this and, anal and analyze this uh, from the woman's perspective, it's, it doesn't show equity in the approach in the sense that uh, Mainly men are the ones that are using cars to get into the city, but women are more likely to use the public transport. And women are more likely as well to be first leaving their kids at school or doing any other errands in the morning and they need to use the sidewalks. So what happens, like the three first hours after uh, they start cleaning the streets, men are going to be the ones that get to work first or to their activities and women are going to be delegated to, them, to the end. And... Uh, it's not only about the fact that we need to consider all of the population, but this actually has an effect in GDP and uh, the way that the amount of accidents that happen in the sidewalks are even more hmm. than the ones that are happening in the street with cars. So it is much easier to go like with a car and drive through three inches of snow that go through a, with a stroller or with a kid and try to get them to school because there's snow in the sidewalk. Vivian Dumpa an urban planner and geographer based in Greece, spoke about cities and children. As a dad to a very active daughter, Vivian's thoughts of making spaces safe for kids throughout the city so they can grow their independence really resonated with me. So you need elements that are friendly, safe and comfortable to young children and their caregivers throughout the whole city. It even affects the transit system, how you will even develop the bus stop or the bus itself, for instance, and how you can... Uh, facilitate the young child and the caregiver to help them together to build the independence of the child through the, through the environment. Mm -hmm. it, is a, it is a very important element where the parent or caregiver feels, feels safe, not to have the child in the stroller, but to walk hand by hand to, to give the opportunity for that. Uh, or to provide elements, even in a park, that is not only strictly a swing a slide, just a typical games, but to help the child develop uh, its senses. Um, so one of the things that we did, we tried to be as interdisciplinary as much as possible. So some of the contributors of the book and later who helped us with the methodology uh, derived from the non-formal education. Kofi Hope of the Wellesley Institute in Toronto shared how without considerations of equity at the forefront of our policy development, significant blind spots can occur. If we're thinking from an equity or justice standpoint, very few, let's take like race as an example, very few policies, municipal policies, if any, maybe like 1% of the majority that come out will explicitly speak to race at all. Hmm. Just like most policies are not going to speak directly to poverty, they're not going to speak to gender, they're just, they just don't speak to these issues. But it doesn't mean that they're neutral. They still have effects that uh, are real for racialized people, for women, for indigenous folks, for others. It's just those become quote unquote unintended side effects of policy. And so part of it is I think we just have this blind spot in general that sees city building as a technical enterprise. Yeah. And one about if we just correctly measure and if we just correctly align with certain amounts of data and certain models that we will get the best outcomes. And 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 there's huge blind spots based in those assumptions, because, you know, 
very few things in this world are truly just simply objective and colorblind and just about the facts. And as we mm-hmm. see, like, let's look at COVID, right? Where in theory, oh, this is a raw science problem. It's a virus. You know, it's this little kind of molecule that's spreading through a population group. And if we just take a facts-based evidence approach, you know, we can solve it. But we're seeing that that approach actually demands thinking about race. It actually mm-hmm. means thinking about poverty. It actually means thinking about the type of work people are doing. Like that there are all of these lenses that have to be considered to fully get a grasp, even on that very, you know, biology based medical crisis. So certainly if you're thinking about a city that really works well, a city that's accessible to everyone, you know, a green city, a resilient city. One of the first blind spots is almost any program i think or policy of consequence there needs to be some sort of equity analysis of it somebody Mm. needs to sit down and go through it and there's ways and there's methodologies but to think about how is this going to impact different communities and who is going to truly benefit from this and who is truly a stakeholder in this policy happy to announce that Prutvi Duna was the winner of the 360 degree city prize pack. He wins a great package donated by some of our previous guests. And that package includes the book Vancouverism by Larry Beasley, the city at eye level for kids by Vivian Dupa and some of her collaborators, the 1989 edition of hindsight magazine by Megan Faulkner and RJ McCullough, a print titled cityscape portrait by Raven Biesinger, and a one-of-a-kind, 360-degree city, City Builder mug. We asked Prutvi if he could introduce himself and share some thoughts about the podcast. Hi, everyone. My name is Prutvi. I'm an urban planner, presently working at Muscat in the Sultanate of Oman. 360-degree city has helped me to rethink about our profession of urban planning. Many times, I get ideas and new learnings from the podcasts and the social media posts. One key idea, or I should say a key learning, which I got from one of the podcasts of 360 Degree is uh, by Mr. Larry Beasley. He said that we planners can become risk averse. And that means sometimes we don't have the courage to do the things we have to do and say the things we have to say. This is a huge learning for me as a young planner, where I understand that as planners, we really need to have the courage to say the things about risks in front of others. 360 degree city has been doing a really great work. Thank you so much and I wish all the best to the whole team at Intelligent Futures and 360 Degree City. Congratulations to Prutvi and I'm a bit jealous about that prize pack that you're going to be receiving. What's been obvious through the first 50 episodes of this podcast is that there isn't a single solution, idea, or person that's responsible for making cities great. Understanding the variety of factors that can improve life in our communities means we all need to keep learning and understanding our cities from a variety of angles. From the outset, our aim was to bring a diversity of topics and voices to the podcast. And while we've done that to a degree, we can certainly do a lot better. 
We're going to keep working to learn from diverse voices in the podcast and would love to hear from you. Is there someone you'd like to hear from on future episodes? And is there a subject you'd like us to explore? Please let us know on our social channels or at hello at 360degree.city. It's been a true honor to talk to so many smart and committed people who are working to make cities better. My conversations with our guests have been a huge battery charge for me, and perhaps a bit selfishly, uh, but they've also helped to bring new information to our practice at Intelligent Futures and have challenged us all on the team to make life better for folks in the communities where we're working. So a huge thank you to all our guests over the past couple of years. Your generosity is very much appreciated. Our team at 360 Degree City is an amazing group of humans, and this project doesn't happen at all without them. Gene Rowe is our producer, taking on the challenge back in 2017 of learning how to put together a podcast despite never having done anything like it before. It's a real testament to her smarts and commitment, and thank you so much for all that you do. Helen Logren is a planner at Intelligent Futures and leads our social media and episode planning. Jeff Robson is the design lead at Intelligent Futures and developed the visual identity for 360 Degree City. Cassandra Cager is the engagement lead at Intelligent Futures and contributes episode ideas and came up with the name for the podcast. Jackie Brown is the communications lead at Intelligent Futures and guides our strategic thinking on the pod. Our former intern, Jay Hewley, who just started grad studies at the University of Calgary, helped monitor our listenership and created a digital document that summarizes key insights from our City Builder series. Stay tuned for that as it's going to be released soon. Past team members at Intelligent Futures, Alistair Wyclef-Jones and Chad Peters were also key contributors. Thanks, guys. And thanks to everyone on the team for growing this conversation about better cities. And finally, thanks to you all who listen to the podcast, including those who share your thoughts, whether on social media, via email, or as we run into folks back in the olden times when we actually gathered for workshops and conferences and the like. We're so glad that the podcast is helping folks see their cities differently and inspiring action. So with that, we'll see you for the next episode of the podcast as we start to dive into the issue of affordable housing.